There have been so many technological advances in recent years, even in recent months, and our ability to preserve and conserve objects important in material culture sits right in the middle of the conversations we're having about how and why we utilize these new tools. Over the next two episodes, we'll be speaking with Jenny Campbell, who has a lot of important things to share about the past and future of costuming and how all of that is affected by technology. Jenny makes wonderfully elaborate costumes for Mardi Gras crews, but that's only half of her professional life. She also works with the museum system in Louisiana, digitizing materials from costume collections, which makes those resources available for museum patrons regardless of where they are located geographically. This conversation could have been bifurcated, split between her two different worlds, but instead it is quite cohesive. Jenny is dedicated to the entirety of her professional self, both the creation of elaborate costumes, which have earned her the title Goddess of Glitter, and her work preserving objects, images, and other materials related to the history of carnival and costume in New Orleans. Everyone, we are back with another episode of the Little Red Village, and today we're talking with Jenny Campbell, who has a really interesting bisected career, very highly specific to different directions. So, we'll be talking today about her digitization and museum work with the Costumes and Carnival collection at the Louisiana Museum, and then we'll also be talking about her work designing some pretty incredible and elaborate. Mardi Gras and parade style costumes for events and private clients and all kinds of things. Jenny, thank you so much. We are thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm so honored and happy to be here with you guys. <laughs> thank you. So it's really interesting to us. We were talking about this, about like the bisection, because it's like you have these hyper specialized fields of study and you do both, which has to be a lot of organization, I can only imagine, a lot of structure. How did you get to this place where you got two things going? A lot of luck and persistence. My previous career up north in Baltimore, I worked in art museums. And so when I came down here to New Orleans, I intended on working in a museum. That didn't work out, so plan B was costuming. And I started making costumes. Prior to that, my only exposure was making costumes for the Coney Island Mermaid Parade. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. That's a great costume venue every year in Coney Island. Yes, it's so, like 1921 or something, right? I think with Margaret Gorman, wasn't she the first? Maybe, maybe yeah. It was a mermaid pageant. Yeah, it, it's it, it's just, it's hot. I, well, I thought it was hot. <laughs> but it's just, a, it's a, it's a nice way to show off your costumes walking on a boardwalk with a nice ocean breeze. So anyway, I came to, when I came down here and I started making costumes, I immediately was getting clients. And of course, I was getting clients related to Mardi Gras and Mardi Gras crews, which as a northerner, I knew nothing about. So to amp up my knowledge, one, to be better for my clients, and then also I just find the history fascinating. I started volunteering at Louisiana State Museum. And I started volunteering with the costume curator to learn as much as I could about the history of Carnival, but also about how the costumes are put together and created. Wow. I bet that's really interesting. I bet that we've talked with a bunch of different people who work in all different directions of this stuff. And we always find that there's like a very specific 
way to make something when there's a, an intent like this. I mean, weren't outside probably during the hotter months. I assume there's certain things you would do. We'll get into this. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Would you talk to us a little bit about the museum digitalization? Like, what project would you? Well, it's a very with? important project, and it is a project that I was a part of in the past when digitization just started coming out. Of course, prior to that, I was printing everything on archival black and white print, black and white darkroom. But it is important to have the images, any museum, any collection out there to share. Not everyone can visit the museum, but they can log on and they can see. There's always inspiration in every piece of artwork that's shared. And that's really important for educating adults and for children too. It just broadens our audience. And I remember when we first started doing digitization, and this was decades ago, of course, people were concerned about, well, if we put everything online, who's going to want to come see the museum? Who's going to want to spend all the time and effort to come and see the actual work when they can just sit at home and see it on the computer? We found that the exact opposite effect happened. When people saw more of the artwork or more of what the museum had, more people came, more people wanted to see more. And then we also learned, too, because once we had the images and the artifacts out there, there, were, of course, were some scholars that didn't know we had this or saw something that they could elaborate on. And then we learned from it, too. I spend so much of my personal time, my private work time, like sending messages to museums, writing and pleading and asking, because you find things, you find the finding guide and you'll go through and you'll see something you think is the right thing and you have to find out. And so I'm like, you're my hero, <laughs> right? Because... The more stuff that you can have access to, the more you can piece stories back together. That's my whole thing. I love putting a story back together. Isn't it fun going um, down rabbit holes and learning and seeing new stuff that you didn't even know was there? Fun going rabbit holes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the best place. Absolutely so much fun. Is there any particular type of digitization project that you find yourself drawn to or, or like most? Mm, well, of course, I'm going to say I'm partial to the, the the Mardi Gras <laughs> mm -hmm. costumes. I was blessed and spoiled to be around some of the finest artwork previously. And now this is just such an interesting and unique history with the carnival costumes. And not only the costumes, the carnival history also involves float making, backdrop making. The art that is involved in carnival making is extensive. So I would say that that is definitely my favorite because also when I'm scanning this or whenever anyone else is seeing this digitized and online, when you're out watching a parade, the flight goes by. <laughs> it goes by so quickly and then you might not be right on, on top of it. So what's the max that you get to see all this beautiful artwork that's on a float? Probably two minutes top, mm -hmm. like that. So I think this is why this getting everything digitized and getting it online is so important because there is such beautiful, beautiful detail that really needs to be shared. No, it makes sense. Absolutely. Is there an early project that sticks out to you? Well, I think definitely when I did something for a very large crew, and they're the oldest woman's crew. I don't know if I can say their name or not. Crew of Iris, but they're the oldest all-women's crew. And now they're the largest crew. So there's over 3,000 members. So seeing something that I did on a float or seeing something in a, in a, in a ball, it, it was unique. It was just really, really just wonderful. I think the other highlight is getting some of my pieces uh, on exhibit and in, in museums. And so again, so they can be shown and shared. Will you tell our audience what a crew is? It's not C-R-E-W, it's K 
R-E-W-E. And a crew is a group or a troop. So that everything that you see associated with Mardi Gras parades, those are crews. And so either there are crews that ride on the floats or there are crews that march, or even there's some crews that just have balls and don't parade, or there's some crews that don't have any balls and just get together for a party. A crew, there's no rules and regulations. I think that's another reason why I love Carnival so much is there no, there's no rules. And so whatever you want your crew to be, you can make it be that. That's pretty freeing. So then one of the things we really were big on here is this whole mentorship idea. And we really feel like anytime we can highlight that, it's a good thing. And it sounds like you made a big life change coming from Baltimore down to New Orleans. And was there anybody who was particularly helpful to you in that career shift and that change? Or any people that really made a difference or made it easier for you? Or did you have to do it on your own? There are mentors everywhere or just in life, just getting you through the day when you're having a bad day or mentors that share their creativity with you or show you how to do something easier or new. Definitely my first mentor was my mom. She's an artist and my family really supported me in anything that I wanted to do artistically. And then when I, when I went to high school, the high school I went to wasn't an art high school, but they really emphasized art, art and music and theater. So I really lucked out with that. And I've just always been supported by aunts and friends, always going to museums, just always people sharing. When you say mentor, I mean, I even have mentors that just share, oh, I, I saw this dress and thought of you. That's still a mentor. That's someone that, that when they send this to me, I, I get inspired by it because they're also seeing something that maybe I didn't see. So mentors are all around and they're just wonderful. And I don't know if mentors will ever really appreciate how much that they help everyone, but they're so needed and so necessary in life and in creativity. Yeah, and I think you speak to an important point, which is to find mentors, sometimes you don't have to look as far as you think. Sometimes they're right in front of you. I think a lot of our young listeners sometimes get nervous when you're younger, you know, reaching out and saying, can I get help with this? Do you have a better way to do this? And I think this idea that anyone can be a mentor is really important. It is, and it's true. Everyone learns from everyone and, and the adults learn from the children and children definitely learn from adults. But yes, ask questions or just be around the person or listen to them, just hear what they want to say. I think a definite another mentor, of course, is the curator that I work with at Louisiana State Museum, who is the curator of costumes, textiles and carnival. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? So he, he is just loves sharing his knowledge with me. And I, I really do appreciate that. But, but yes, mentors are always around you. And most people, I don't think people grow up and say, oh, I want to be a mentor. But if someone asks them a question, most people want to be helpful and they will help. They will help you. Really true. And I think what you said about younger people being able to mentor is also absolutely true. And I think that's one of the best things about this type of social dynamic is that everybody gets something out of it. Right. Like nobody is actively seeking like enrichment. Nobody's trying to like make themselves something. But just by having those relationships and just by extending yourself, making yourself open to give or to receive. Younger people learn from older people, older people learn from younger people, people of all ages can have different levels of experience or specialty or knowledge. And yeah, it's 
It's a magical thing. I love hearing had many of them in infinite number. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So would you tell us about a project, a museum digitalization project, where you like really impressed yourself or you, you did something that was particularly hard or had to figure out a creative solution for? Well, there's always creative solutions to be had. And that's mainly when you're given a task, one is mastering it and then trying to, to make it better or make it quicker without losing the quality of it. So I am always trying to do that. So when I am working, I try to multitask without without messing anything up. Of course, I am working with real artifacts. So there is great care taken in handling those. I think one of the, the best things that we came across recently is there were some slides that the museum had recently purchased. It was over 900 slides from 1959 to 1971 of not only just carnival scenes in the French Quarter, but also just life scenes in general. So to have that and then to have it together where you see this, the same people, but on different days or doing different things for fun. So scanning all of those is great. When I scan the images, we may, I mainly scan those so they're shared with all of my coworkers. Now, if that we have something, you can request an image of it. But we have the Louisiana Digital Library, which we are, and all the other cultural institutions of Louisiana, share their images to. And anyone can go on that. So that is a wealth of images. And if you want more information about it, then you can contact the institution. So this includes libraries, colleges, and, of course, museums. So we do load up things on there. I, I wish we could do it quicker, <laughs> but it, it, to be able to share it with the public, that is, that is what museums are all about. Yeah, that's so important. So would, I guess I was hearing your answer on that, and I was realizing we should ask you, would you walk us through a project, a digitization project? You don't have to give us every single proprietary detail, but how does how does that work? How does a project go from, hey, this should be done, to you can log on to the Louisiana Digital Library and, and find it? How does that happen? Well, every curator or employee at the museum, of course, they have a wish list of items or collections that they want to share. So that's that's all that's always there. That's always in the background. But if you need something more immediate, you would ask me about this. I would track down the location of it. The Louisiana State Museum, we have 13 museums statewide, and I think there's seven locations just in the French Quarter. So the person asking this might not be in the same building, or the artwork might not be in the same building. The building I'm in is where all the art, most of the artifacts are. I'm in artifact storage. So then I, I or an art handler would bring it to me, and then... I would set it up and scan it at a very high resolution, very, very high. And then it's so high that basically the large image sits on my computer and then it's reduced and shared. They don't need a very, very large file for that. I set my own schedule. There's never nothing to do. There's always something for me to dive deep into. There's always sketches to be scan, there's float designs to be scanned, there's documents to be scanned, there's always something. Yeah, I'm sure that there is, I mean, I know just from, again, from my own work, communicating with various facilities, wherever they are, that there's never going to be enough funding, there's never going to be enough hours. Yeah. There's so much. And I think that 
until I started doing this work 10 or 15 years ago, I think probably a lot of people, I wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have known that, that like the sheer quantity of a paper was filled with information, like information, visual, digital, written, not digital, obviously. pictures, it can be lists, it can be handwriting, it can be type, whatever. And I think it really does take either a huge amount of public attention or it takes <laughs> the, the right person or the right funding to, to get certain things. And that's not the fault of any museum. That's just the reality, I'm sure, of running a facility and trying to serve so many masters of all the different needs and wants and desires. It's always about the wish list. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a consequence of just the volume of material culture that we have across institutions, not even just specialized collections. There is never enough funding. But I think that's also what unites all of us history nerds. Because we like the dig. We like the dig. The digging is, is, is part of the joy. Which brings me to a question I was thinking of as you were talking. If someone listening was has the bug for the digging, what skill sets would you recommend they focus on developing if they want to go into the curatorial or research-driven side of things, you know, archiving? Well, definitely history, art history, or just history in general. And then, of course, any computer skills, the photography and digitization side of it. I think a lot of people, more people than in the past, have those skills now already, which is great. But knowing the history, even though I did not go to college and I'm learning all on my own by either volunteering or reading and doing my own research. But I think what's important is if you decide a certain field, whether it be art or just history in general, volunteer at a museum. That that will get that will get you in. Take all the classes they have. The the, the children, even take take the classes with the children or for the children. It's never too early to start with this. And it, it, it is it is always just a knowledge that's going to continue to grow. Yeah, I love that. Early, early is best for, for almost anything you think of, especially educationally. Earlier is best, and I think immersion is so important. And in recent years, we've seen certain online projects and digitization projects focusing on things like three D scanning garments and like like this. How do you feel about that? Is that something that has been explored at the Louisiana Museum or that you've come in contact with? Or do you have any Did you say scanning the garments? Yeah, like 3D scanning to create like a 3D model of an extinct garment. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm for that. As long as it doesn't damage the artifact, most definitely. A lot of what I do is 2D. There is some 3D stuff. If there's 3D, we'll hire a photographer. But I think scanning all around digitally, yes, I think that's great. I also think it's great because this might be getting too deep, but we're getting into things that are in museums that don't belong in the museums that they're in. <laughs> No, and that's absolutely fine. That's not too deep. Okay. Yeah. So things that were stolen from where they were made, I think that that might be one of the solutions is to get a good digital scan and return it to the place of origin. And then the museum, yes, I understand the value that they put on this artifact, but they can get a scan, a 3D printed 3D printout of the object. Yeah, I mean, I love that. In terms of repatriation of objects, you can't, that is, the, I think, the best use of this technology for the sector. 
I also think again, in terms of accessibility and meeting like future generations where they are at with technology and being able to place 3D objects within environments for them is, is native. I agree. If, if you're putting all the value on this object for the educational purposes of it, if you have a top-notch replica of it, that's achieved that purpose. And so when these things are stolen from their original cultures, it means something else to them that, mm -hmm. that the museums that have them will never get. So the original needs to be returned. And of course, we're talking about skulls and everything else. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, I mean, there's bodies, there's human beings. Yeah. For me. Yeah, there's ritual objects. There's Religious, yeah. There's all sorts yeah, of... Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. Culture. I mean, it really kicks down a lot of those arguments about why it needs to be left wherever it happens to be. <laughs> there's not like a nice way to say that. I'm trying really hard. Yeah. It's <laughs> no, I think that's lovely. It's really elegant. And you're right. It, I mean, it means that it's current. It means it can be shared. It means it can be used in other research. I think that's wonderful. It's lovely. Simple, which is great. So many solutions don't have to be massively, massively complex. So another issue that we're, we're seeing a lot of right now is this AI stuff. And we, we've been picking up people asking questions about AI because it really does affect things in a lot of different directions. Because like, it brings up questions of IP and ownership and what is allowed to be scanned and what's not allowed to be scanned. Do you think that there's any connection there with the museum digitization process? I mean, I don't think there's anything you can do about this. It would be nice if you could credit maybe where the influence came from. But I, th I think that AI is like an artist's mind. How are, how are you going to know where this inspiration came from? You can't really pinpoint where it, where it came from. I mean, maybe you can. There are certain styles that, like, if you do something like Jackson Pollock. Well, if it looks like that, then maybe you can credit credit that. Which, But I, I really don't see how people can put ownership of their things when they're out there. And I'm not saying you should steal, but there's always going to be people that are going to steal, and there's always going to be people that give proper credit. I see this, that this is going to be an asset. It just makes people that don't see themselves as creative, as being creative. So it, it gives them that opportunity. But as a costumer, when people come to me and say, hey, I want this AI created piece. Well, I can't do that because that's not real life. But if you're going for the beauty of this costume, there you have it. You have the beauty of the costume right in front of you. So that that, that is the artwork. Yeah, it's it's. I just don't see how you can have ownership of things that are out there. I guess one of the one of the questions that I was places I was wondering was like, I as a member of the public kind of go request something and have it copied or scanned or told that it's impossible for whatever legitimate X reason. <laughs> it's too fragile. Whatever. And I guess in the same way, like we were just saying about there being the solution with the making of the copies, I'm wondering if there's a way that, I don't know, it could aid the ethical possibilities here. It could be good. It could be positive. If there's a way that it could help. It seems like, we keep, I keep hearing stories in the news, for example, about people discovering that their, their IP, their intellectual property has been used to test or to, to grow or to whatever. I don't know. I'm always looking for the solutions. I feel like there's got to be something in here that would be, that would be helpful. I'm just rambling in circles. <laughs> it's, I mean, it was something, one of the other museums I worked at was the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. And technically, we didn't own ownership of any of that. 
because we had no contemporary artist and everyone was over 75 years since past. It's all like in the public domain, is that Yeah, so everything, everything was technically in the public domain. But if you wanted mm -hmm. a good digital image, you would contact us and we would give that to you because we had the original artwork. And so all we asked is, we knew what our limitations were and we asked that fair use. So if you were using something and making money off of it, most people said, hey, I'm going to put this in a book. It's going to have 5,000 copies made. And then their price would be calculated to that. So most people were good. And I think that's the way that we have to go with AI is just trying to share the knowledge with, I think that's the only way that we can do it. As an artist too, yes, your, your artwork's going to be copied. It's going to be, people are going to use it whatever way that they want. So do you sit on it and, and, and don't share it. it, it it's, tr it's tricky. It's just, it's really tricky. And you just got to hope for the best, the people, that people will do the right thing. When I share things that I know are a definite influence, like I, something I made for Mardi Gras was Klimt. And so I acknowledge that, that this was my influence. You always want to be a teacher too. So I acknowledge that that was who inspired me. And then if people like that, Maybe they hadn't heard of this artist before. Then they'll do their own research and continue with that. So as an artist, too, either you create art or you spend your time chasing down people that are stealing your art. There are not enough hours in the day to do both. Yeah, and never. It, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. It is, particularly when you're trying to make a career in arts and you see someone making money that you could have possibly made. But... Maybe it's our fault that we're artists and we're just more concerned about creating things instead of having a lawyer in I mean, our pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even if you do, not everyone wants to spend five million billable hours on fighting. You have to fight it. Yeah, and it's expensive. Those billable hours yeah. are not; they can be very quickly achieved. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's it's horrible. It's it's horrible. In a, in an ideal world, artists would make more money than lawyers, but that's not how it works. So, it's an um, world that's for sure. I think if you go in, if you go into this field, you just that's what you realize it is going to happen. I think most creative, especially in fashion and costuming and dress, know that there's that intrinsic capacity for their work to be copied without compensation. I think I think it's one of those swap pills that design students slowly learn to swallow coming into design school very optimistic about it and then realize it very quickly mm, i'm going to get ripped off by a sheen i'm going to get ripped off by a temu any of these fast fashion companies right now there's that lawsuit going on that was just brought against sheen by a group of creatives for, I heart warms every time i hear those words <laughs> i'm sorry terrible I mean, the volume that they machine produces, they essentially are uh, their own little AI. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I was a Batman villain. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it happens. And they, they, can, they can copy and produce way quicker than, than you ever could. So that, that, that's an issue, too. I, I know it happens to a friend of mine that he follows a certain site. And within a couple of weeks, there it is, a replica of something that he created from his own mind. and it, it is it is frustrating, but I, I wish I had the answer. I wish I had the answers for it. I know. 
there's so much value in just talking about it, even considering it, asking, thinking, and making those conversations more accessible and encouraging people to have them on their own. There's value just in that. I mean, I think of things all the time, like two o'clock in the morning, we're showering before we go to bed. It's not useful then. (laughs) The more opportunities we have to set up solutions, to find places where there's overlap, where there's, that's always good. There, yeah, there are people out there that 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 do honor and appreciate the original creator. Mm-hmm. They're all oh, absolutely. So thank God for those people. Yeah, fashion collections every season where they're talking about who their influences came from and why it mattered to them and how. It, yeah, I love seeing this. But this does bring me to, I guess, the, the next point. Just you know, vis-a-vis the idea that anyone wanting to go into these fields should be familiar with these facts, but. Speaking of career paths, in your estimation, Jenny, what does having a career in museums, having a museum career look like in 2023? And how is that maybe different from your journey? Oh, well, funding. <laughs> it's, it's, I've been working in museums for so long. I remember the glory days of museums when exhibits got their own catalog and posters and all the print material and then educational classes that, that went with each show. It, yeah, I remember the glory days of that. And that was lovely. That was corporate sponsorship too. A lot of it was that. Some of what's changed is if there is money to be had, it comes more from individuals and more. And then you have the individual that somehow believes in your museum, but will try to attach a lot of strings to to the money, even so much to the extent of, dictating content or how it's yeah. played and things like that. So I have, I have seen some examples of that. As far as museum work, my, the first thing when you asked that question, the first thing came to mind was, oh, well, maybe it means more people working from home. But nope, it's, it's not that at all. You go into museums, not for the money, <laughs> that's for sure. But you go into it because you want to be surrounded by such beauty and you want to learn something new every day and you want to see something new every day. And I've been in museums for 30 years and, and very seldom do I see the same thing twice. So, yes, you, you will still have to go to, to work into a, a building and, and, and you'll want to. Other than that, I think, I think the challenges ahead are just what we touched on is, is, always, is always money. We could put every single object, including the objects that are in storage, which we'll probably never see the light of day, on view but people still want to come to a museum. So you mentioned before that you didn't have a traditional educational experience. I didn't, there's all kinds of weird stuff. A lot of my, who I am is autodidactical and I love that. And I think maybe some people would hear museum as a career and they would immediately think PhD or advanced degree. But I loved hearing that you figured out a way to do this work without having all of that. Do you think that that's something that's still possible today? Is it? Maybe more possible or less? Uh, I think it's less possible, but it is possible. And I say that in that my in has always been my dedication to whatever museum I was working at, my love for it, and getting to know it from the inside out. And that's why I volunteer. So when the time came for there to be positions to be filled, I was already there. So that, that my portfolio... I gotta be honest with you. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> no, no, yeah, there's a magic to all this, and right? I can like, tell you from- yeah, it's just 
right place, right time. I, I guess another another when we speak in the mentors, definitely the the head of photography who hired me for the Walters Art Museum. She had seen my work in photo dark rooms. You know, she took a chance on me and she hired me without a degree. And I worked there for 20 years. So it's it's disheartening to see so many people, though, going to college and spending all the money for museum studies. And the jobs are few and far in between. I mean, they they really are. And a trend that I'm seeing in a lot of museums, and they're calling themselves museums, is the Instagram, the Instagram spot. So it's not so much artifacts, but it's all just walking through. You might pick up some knowledge here and there, but it's mainly about getting a good image to share on Instagram. Now that too is part of a museum because you're sharing it and you're sharing where where this photo is taken. So that I think is an, another trend that's happening that people just in their general knowledge can bring to a museum. I'm going to indulge in a very specific kind of niche question as a former professional fundraiser. You mentioned that a lot of major donors now are increasingly adding more strings and things like this. Do you find that some form of a facility with development and fundraising and how the money moves would help someone who wants to work on the more curatorial side and have the fluency between those two disciplines? Do you think that would be beneficial to someone who's looking to get into the curatorial side? Do you find there's a lot of room for that dialogue? Someone on the curatorial side to have knowledge of. Are you saying like a combination of finding funding and being able to work? Correct. Funding your projects, kind of. Funding. Yeah. Would you would you suggest someone interested in, in any side of the curatorial side gain a knowledge of how the money flows and works and what it's like to get an exhibition funded or to work around whatever strings, for example, a, a major donor puts in their giving agreement. I think that is extremely important for being a curator and for for everything that you do. Yes, you must know where the money's coming from. You must know how you could have the best ideal for the best exhibit ever. Well, who, where's the money coming from? Well, you have to know who might be the clientele that would be interested in seeing this show. And when people give money to museums, they want to meet you. They want to. They want to learn from your knowledge too. They want to see behind the scenes. They. 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 Maybe they're paying for that little bit of access to come through the costume storage area. That's fine because that again is part of the the mission of the museum. It's sharing the knowledge. But yes, I think as a curator, that is absolutely essential. Is to have the money aspect of it, the money side of it. Yucky sometimes. Yeah, it it is. It's the, it's the constant hunt for for paying rent. It's just it, it's always you get to the pinnacle of your success where you want to be, and, and if you could only just create every waking hour <laughs> and know that it's still hard, or no, just keep creating, creating, creating. But someone's got to pay the bills. Wasn't Jenny fantastic? This first part of her interview focused a lot on her work in the museum world, as well as introducing some of her gorgeous costuming work in New Orleans, which brings me to our first footnote for this week. Mardi Gras, French for the phrase Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, especially in New Orleans, 
is not so much of a single celebration, but an entire season stretching from the Three Kings Day celebration in January to Shrove Tuesday, usually in February, but once in a while stretching into March. This carnival celebration includes costumes, parades, balls, cotillions, and parties all throughout the city and, in fact, the world. Which brings me to our second footnote. Central to Mardi Gras in New Orleans are crews. And as Jenny pointed out, it is spelled K-R-E-W-E-S. Groups of like-minded folks who come together to celebrate Mardi Gras in their own unique way. These social clubs organize all of the events going on throughout the city and parades, with some having been established as early as 1856. Each crew has their own traditions, themes, and events that they produce, and Jenny happens to make costumes for many different types of crews. That's all for today's footnotes for part one of Jenny's episode of Little Red Village. Make sure to check out the additional resources available on our blog at littleredfashion.com slash blog.